you have your Bibles with you, open them up to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. And although we will be stopping at our Advent passage in Isaiah 9, 2 through 7, you can open them up to Isaiah chapter 7, which is where we will begin this morning. Christmas is a demanding time. It's just an incredibly busy time of the year for most people. There are parties, there are for those who are in school end of the year exams, there are uh, things to do, gifts to buy, things to prepare for. Our family knows the pinch of this well. We have two children who had the uh, outrageous audacity to have their birthdays in December, um, which we hold them accountable for each and every year. Uh, so it's just a, it's an incredibly busy time, and it's easy then to get totally lost as you go through the year, especially through December on what all is supposed to be, as we like to say, the reason for the season. And one of the reasons why we do Advent is so that we can, as the year unfolds and as December unfolds, keep our eyes on the main reason for Christ's coming. Today we're going to look at the role of prophecy in that. The first candle that is lit on the Advent is the candle of prophecy. It was of no wonder then that we read from the book of Isaiah. It is important that as we think through what prophecy means that we turn to this terribly important book that speaks so fully of the prophecies concerning Christ, not only of his birth, but also, importantly, of his death. We need to think through the importance of what Christ has done. Christianity is filled with a number of very, very difficult things that we can sink our teeth into and dwell on. We can think of the difficulty of the Trinity and, and how it is that three People can be in one being and explore through sermon after sermon after sermon, if we were so called to, the deepness and the importance of that doctrine. If there is any doctrine that might challenge the complexity of that one, it is the incarnation, that one of those people left the glory of heaven to be enfleshed, to, to come and, and be with us. And in doing so, he didn't lose his divinity. He did not simply become man and leave behind what he was, nor did becoming man sort of nullify the fact that he was God. He, he didn't co-mix the two so that they became some sort of third thing, neither God nor man, but he was fully God with all the rights and powers and authority of divinity and fully man with all of the weakness of the flesh. It is an amazing thing to think through, frankly. And as we approach this then, we need to see that prophecy plays an important role in allowing us to understand what it was that Christ has come to do. It's important that we start with prophecy because, frankly, that's where the New Testament starts. The Gospels themselves start with prophecy. Matthew, after his brief genealogical introduction, turns almost immediately to the fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew 1, 22 and 23 read this way. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That is a passage that we will be reading from today. Four more times in the first two chapters, Matthew will turn to prophecy. He will turn to the Old Testament, and he will say, this was to fulfill what the prophet said. This was to fulfill. It's clear that at the very beginning of his gospel, Matthew is forcing at us, he is throwing at us continuously the idea that this child that is born, this one Jesus who has been given to us, is the fulfillment of things in the past. 
Luke does essentially the same thing, only he does it in reverse. It's not at the beginning of his gospel that he talks like this, but at the end of his gospel that he talks like this. In Luke 24, verses 25 to 27, after the resurrection, Jesus meets two men on the road who are walking to Emmaus, and he asks them what's going on in Jerusalem, and they don't recognize Jesus, and they're telling him all of the goings-on in Jerusalem. And they show that they are, are unsure of what to make of all of this. And Jesus says to them in verse 25, O foolish ones, how slow and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That is essentially the same thing that Matthew is doing. All of Scripture is fulfilled. The Old Testament finds its culmination in Jesus Christ. It's what the church fathers called the hypothesis of Jesus. That without Jesus, the Old Testament doesn't work. It doesn't function correctly. But once you have Jesus there, once you have this coming child, once you have his death and his resurrection, the Old Testament now makes sense. So if we are to start to understand what has happened in the coming of Christ— we start in no better place than prophecy. And if we are to start there, we should start where Matthew starts. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, if you were to get a group of Old Testament scholars together and throw a rock at them, that rock would undoubtedly hit one of them who would look at Matthew's quotation of Isaiah 7.14 and would roll his eyes so hard he would fall over backwards, also because you gave him a concussion throwing a rock at him. But, and he would look at that and he would say, listen, Isaiah didn't really mean that, Matthew. Isaiah didn't actually say that. Now, he, he talks about a, a word that could be translated as virgin, but it could also just be a young woman. And as you look through Isaiah, there's good indications that he just meant the young woman that we will be talking about and that even is Isaiah's wife. The question is, does Matthew treat Isaiah well, and, and can we actually rely upon prophecy? So as we turn then to Isaiah 7, let us walk through these two, nay, three chapters of Isaiah to show us that prophecy is indeed reliable, that how Matthew treats the prophecy is indeed reliable, and more than that, that Matthew is not importing a meaning into the text, but he is pulling meanings out of the text based on what he knows of Christ, and most importantly, that he knows how to read Isaiah better than all of those Old Testament scholars do. So let's go to Isaiah. And begin in Isaiah 7, and we'll sort of set the scene for you. The kingdom has been long divided into two separate kingdoms. There is a northern kingdom, which is sometimes called Israel, sometimes called Ephraim. Ephraim, one of the sons of Jacob. Uh, and it was named that because one of the tribes was known as Ephraim. And so he becomes sort of the name that is applied to all of the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom is known as Judah. It is where we get the name of Jews from. The king of the southern kingdom has been threatened by the king of the northern kingdom with an ally, Syria, to the north. And Syria and Ephraim have come together, and they've come down to Judah, and they are threatening Judah. Verse 2 of chapter 7 says that the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest 
shake before the wind. They are troubled, to say the least. But the Lord knows this. And he goes to Isaiah and he tells Isaiah, Go, meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah. He says, be careful. Watch what you speak. Watch what you say. As a matter of fact, it's probably better if you don't say anything at all, but certainly you are not going to fear. These, these are smoldering stumps. They, they can burn you, and, and there, there is some danger in them, but they're smoldering. They're not a flame. I will put them out shortly. Because, he says in verse 5, Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. God's answer to that comes in verse 7. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is a son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. God says, what they have devised against you will not stand. I will not let it stand because Syria is nothing more than Damascus and Damascus is nothing more than resin. And the same goes for Ephraim. It's nothing more than Samaria and Samaria, nothing more than the son of Remaliah. It will not stand. And so God promises through the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz, I will not allow them to take over your kingdom. Now, typically when God gives promises like this, it is the time for the human being who stands in front of him to ask him for signs. Moses, when he was first called, he's told to go free his people. He looks at this burning bush that's not consumed and he says something along the lines of, well, that's great and all, but I don't there speak well, so maybe you should send somebody else. And God says, no, I'll tell you what, why don't you take the staff and throw it on the ground? And when he does so, the staff becomes a snake, and it's a sign of God's power over nature, over all of creation. That he does what he wants to do. Gideon does the same thing. You remember, he doesn't just do it once. The very, very bold Gideon does it twice. He throws a fleece down, and he says, listen, this is, this is what we'll do, God. I, I, I'll do what you ask, but you've got you to work with me here. So I, on this fleece, if, if I wake up in the morning, there's dew on the fleece, but there's none on the ground, we're a go-go. And that happens, and he says, okay, well, that could have been, you know, just luck. So let's, let's flip that. We'll, we'll make the, the fleece dry and the ground wet. And God graciously comes to them, and he does what they ask. But you'll notice that Ahaz doesn't even speak here. God promises, and then he says the following in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as as Sheol, or as high as heaven. He says, ask anything that your little brain can conceive of. I, I don't care how high it might seem. I don't care how low it might go. You can ask anything of me, and I will demonstrate my power to you so that you will not sway in the breeze. 
that you will not be led to fear this king or that king, that you will know that I am God and that I am with you and that I am for you and I will help you as much as you can possibly dream of. I will do it. This is like Bill Gates showing up at your door with a blank check saying, hey, why don't we go shopping? You can have anything you want to. But, verse 12, Ahaz says, in what most undoubtedly was the most pious English voice he could come up with, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. You can almost see, just like that Old Testament scholar rolling his eyes, Isaiah is now rolling his eyes at King Ahaz. God has come to you and said you can ask for anything that you want to so that God will prove to you that he is for you and working for you, and you respond like that. Isaiah answers in verse 13, and Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The virgin shall conceive. Old Testament scholars are correct on one thing. The word that's used there can be used of a young woman. And as we go through the rest of the text, as we come to chapter 8, it appears, frankly, that they have a very good point. And indeed, we will admit that they have a very good point. At the beginning of chapter 8, we read this. The Lord then said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. You kind of get a sense that that is actually the fulfillment of what's going on here. After all, the sign was supposed to be for Ahaz, and the sign for Ahaz was supposed to be the birth of a child, and that birth of a child was supposed to get him to understand that the king of Assyria, or the king of Syria and the, the king of Ephraim were not going to actually destroy him, right? And so all of a sudden you have Isaiah going to his wife, and they have a son, that son's name Maher Shalal Hashbaz means something along the lines of the spoil speeds and the prey hastens. It's, it's a chasing away of those things. And then he explains what this means before he knows how to cry my father or my mother. Damascus is gone under the hands of Assyria. It, it looks like all the puzzle pieces fit. It looks like it all sort of works. But as we read on, we find that there is a difficulty in this. There is then destruction prophesied throughout the rest of chapter 8. And then we come to verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So Isaiah's changed tax here a little bit. If, if this is Isaiah speaking, he says, okay, so you need to understand something. Not only will God not do this, but 
I am going to wait for the Lord. The Lord will actually rescue us. And he says, not only is his son a sign now, he says, I and the children, not just the one son, but all of the kids are signs, importance, importance, display of wonder. It's like watching a firework go up and then you immediately start looking for the rest of them. They, they, are, they are wondrous signs that make you inspect more closely. He says, we are signs importance of Israel that the Lord will do what he claims. I, I worked with kids for a long time, high school kids, and I learned very quickly that the one thing you never, ever, ever say to parents is that your child is wonderfully average. Parents hate that. They must think really poorly of everyone else's kids. They never want to hear that their kid is perfectly average at something. They always want to think that they're special in some way, shape, or form. But no, your kids are all perfectly average. They really are. Uh, Wonderfully average. My kids are as well. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I'm sure that Isaiah wouldn't be too terribly upset if I looked him in the eye and I said, Isaiah, I'm sure Mahashalal Hashbaz is a fantastic child but he is also perfectly average. And there's something very odd about the fact that you looked at Ahaz and you claimed that God would give a sign as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol, and then you turn around and say, now look at my son. And not only does he do that, but then he turns around and he says, don't just look at my one son, look at all of my kids and look at me. We are the depiction, we are the sign that God is for you and not against you. Now, okay, maybe, maybe Isaiah is just prone to pride. But as we read on, that becomes less and less likely. In verse 19, And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. And now listen to how Isaiah will use this imagery of light and dark and gloom and brightness to show what salvation is. They have no salvation. They are always in night. They are forever in darkness. They have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upwards. They will blaspheme directly up at the heavens. They will look to the earth. You'll behold distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. There will be no hope for them. But then in chapter 9, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious by the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations." The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as are as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, And every garment rolled in blood will be burned 
as fuel for the fire. He says, there is now a day coming when the gloom that lands over Israel, this anticipation of salvation, they will have a dawn. A light will come. Salvation will come to them. And all of the oppression that has been over them will be erased like darkness from the light. And all the trampling of the warriors and all the rods of their oppressors will be put to an end. And why, Isaiah? Why do you know this? What is going to happen that will bring this to us? He says in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It is unlikely in the highest that Isaiah ever fathomed writing that about his child. The fulfillment of this passage, when he says... Someone will conceive a son, a virgin, a young woman will conceive a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, is paired. It is put side by side. It envelopes everything that happens in the middle with this calling of a great salvation that will come because a child is born. The same child from 714 is the child that's mentioned in Isaiah 9-6. And he will be God with us. He will be called Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Why then does Isaiah speak of himself in chapter 8? Isaiah speaks of himself in chapter 8 because he is indeed a sign. It's almost like a sign of a sign, if you will. He is actually the one who they will look to and they will see his son and his son is a sign that Damascus will not overrun Judah. But that is not the real salvation that God is talking about, and that is not the real child who will bring the salvation. They are pictures of what will come. It is a picture of deliverance that Christ will eventually bring, and Meher Shalal Hashbaz is a picture of a child born to a young woman that will eventually be the child who is born to a virgin. And notice how much more sense it makes to say, as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol, and not just having something that happens every day. Somewhere around the world it's happening right now, a young woman giving birth to a child. That isn't much of a sign. That's a Sunday morning. That happens all the time. But a child being born to a virgin, that doesn't happen. That is a sign. Matthew reads this and he says, that's what happened to Christ. Everything that happens to Isaiah and his son in this a picture of the real, true picture that will be coming. When he says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given to me. You know who the New Testament says is speaking there? They say it's Christ. They put those words on the lips of Jesus. The everlasting Father will show up with his children, you. Jesus will call you children. In Hebrews 2, they make mention of these passages, both I will wait for the Lord and I will hope in him. I will put my trust in him. And he says, behold, I and the children of the Lord has given to me. 
You are signs and portents in Israel of God's salvation, of the dawn of his salvation. There's a reason why they put that on the lips of Jesus. Prophecy is reliable. The way that Matthew deals with that prophecy is reliable and it's good. Secondly, and much more quickly, prophecy is inherently then God-centered. It is God-centered. It is about God so that we might recognize God's handiwork. God is the one who makes it happen and has it fulfilled in and of himself. The whole point of a prophecy like this is so that it would leave no doubt as to why this has come about. Listen, we, we trust firmly and solidly that God is sovereign over everything. He is sovereign over every hair that falls out of my head too terribly often, and he is the God who is over all of the leaves falling off the trees. He not only is over all the leaves falling off the trees, he knows what color they are. He knows the way the wind will blow them when it comes down because he has ordained it. He is sovereign over everything. So we can wonder what is the point of prophecy. If we are going to look at every single thing that happens in our lives and we are supposed to say God has ordained that this happens and in certainly some way, shape, or form we are to do that. God is sovereign over all things. Everything happens according to the counsel of his will. How is prophecy then any different? Let's use a little bit of an analogy here. We know that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. There isn't a place where you can go where you can get away from him. Psalm 139 verses 8 to 10 says this, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. God is everywhere. And yet the people of Israel knew that there were moments where God manifested himself so powerfully in one place and in one location. It was different. He is everywhere, but he is specifically there. He is on the Ark of the Covenant. He is leading his people through the Red Sea. He is found then eventually in Jesus in the most intensely manifested part of his divinity ever. When we look at prophecy, we find that it's so God-centered, it is so miraculous in its fulfillment that we are to understand that it is God manifesting his sovereign action in a way that is utterly unique. You are never able to look at this and to say, well, this was simply a coincidence. It was some sort of happenstance, or man somehow made and manufactured this. The whole point is that it's set up in such a way that man can't manufacture this. Coincidence wouldn't have made this happen, and happenstance is completely out the window. There's only one being that could have brought this about, and that is God himself. That's the whole purpose of prophecy. This is why it's so important for Matthew to look at the birth of Jesus and every incident that happens to him and say, this fulfills scripture because this is the promised son and God is working through him. When fulfilled, prophecy is such that we have to respond, God did this. There is no other response from us. And therefore, thirdly, Prophecy is comforting. Prophecy is to be comforting to us. Isaiah takes a pretty sincere and clear turn in chapter 40. So much so that scholars have argued, the same Old Testament scholars who would say that this wasn't actually quoted correctly by Matthew, would say that a different person wrote 
Isaiah 40 through 66. Whether or not that's true, we won't know until we get to heaven and can ask him. There's no reason to suspect that, really. But there is a clear divide from Isaiah 39 to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 39, we read these words. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah in verses 5 and 6, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, this is the king of Judah, a descendant from Amos, Ahaz, excuse me, when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon, nothing shall be left, says the Lord. God's justice is finally falling on his people. They have denied him long enough, and he will now lead his people into exile and lead them into Babylon. And then immediately in chapter 40, in verse 1, we read these words. God says to Isaiah, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah, my people are going into exile and you are going to comfort them. And you comfort them by telling them all of the good things that are coming. Prophecy is meant to comfort us in the present time, knowing that there are better things coming for us. Our comfort is not like their comfort. Their comfort was in the midst of exile. Their comfort was in the hope that the Lord would fulfill the word that he has spoken. Our comfort is different because our comfort has already had much of this fulfilled for us. Christ has indeed come. Christ has indeed died, and he has indeed been resurrected again. But although we taste of the goodness that Christ has left for us, we do not experience it fully. And everyone in here knows how hard Christmas can be. You lose people around Christmas. Even the best bits of Christmas, church family, being with your natural family, being around people and giving gifts and loving on them, you know how sour that can turn and how much more sour it is because it's supposed to be a time of family. When somebody's missing from that, when you've lost someone, someone has died in the recent years, you know how sharp that pain is because they're supposed to be here with us. You know how sharp it is during this season when selflessness is supposed to be the rule of the day and we find that people are nothing but selfish. When hatred reigns instead of love. But our comfort does not look like theirs because we are more comforted by these words because we have then seen how God has fulfilled the word that he has spoken. He has said, ask for a sign as high as heaven or as low as Sheol and I will give it to you. And he and then gives us that sign and fulfills that sign. How much more comfort are we to have then that our travail, that our discomfort here will one day be taken away. And if this prophecy was to Formant within the people of Israel an idea that God is going to be good to us. How much more reason have we to think that in all of the difficulties that we face in this world, God will still be better to us? We have more comfort in these words because we know that a God who can keep these words will keep every promise to us.
that there will be a day when we will no longer miss our loved ones. There will be a day when we will be united without crying and without tears and without selfishness, without hatred and anger and falsity, that we will be with one another in joy and in love always and forevermore. We have comfort through our travails here because we know that that is coming. And finally, prophecy is therefore hope-filled. Prophecy always looks to the future. We are comforted now because there is a hope-filled future for us. This is the whole point of Isaiah 40 through 66. Time and time again, God calls upon Isaiah to prophesy to his people, to tell them to be comforted because I am bringing better things. I am bringing all of the goodness that I have promised in the past is coming to fruition and it has come in Christ. It is not fully here yet, but it will be when he comes again. So as we celebrate Advent, as we wait for the day in which Christ has come for the first time, we await even more the day when he will come for the second time and put an end to all of our difficulties because we have a true living and abiding hope. It's a curious thing. When will people, for whatever reason, stop relying and placing their hope upon men or women? You're to blame too, right? There are problems with war and famine and disease. There's problems with the economy and and inequality. There are problems with hatred and oppression. All of these things, every single one of them have been caused by man. And yet people continue to turn to men for answers, men who are in control of technologies, men who are in control of economies, men who are in control of ecology men who are in control of education, men who are in control of everything in the world, we continually turn to them, asking for them to fix. And we place our hope that technology is going to fix the demons that surround us every single day, and it's just not going to happen. There is no hope in those things. There is only hope in Christ. This was the great promise that God has given. It is the child that was born to us that your hope is sealed and secured in. It is the child who will put an end to sin and disease. It is the child who will take away your enmity with God. It is the child who will eventually bear your sins on his body to take away the penalty of sin for you. It is that child who will one day allow you to be reunited with God and will make atonement for you. It is that child in which all of your hopes are placed. And when that happens, if you place your hopes in Christ, then all of this, all of the prophecy, all of it is true for you. But it's only in that. It's not a season simply to share with families, as good as that is. It is not a season for us to think through how near and dear giving gifts and getting gifts and seeing the brightness in your children's eyes, your perfectly average children's eyes. It is great to do that. I applaud that. I will do that myself many, many times. But that's not it. The coming of Christ was prophesied so that we would be comforted and we would be filled with hope knowing that every ill that we have done has been forgiven. Every ill that has been done against us will be given back to us all the more. Paul says, I know that no matter what suffering you're going through, it is not worth even comparing to the glory that will be revealed to you. He says that only because he has seen Christ, because he knows the hope of what is coming to him. This is the gospel. 
It is a message of great joy for all people, precisely because it is for all people. This book of Isaiah is sometimes called by the early church the fifth gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Isaiah. Because Isaiah speaks of this great worldwide joy. It is great joy for all people because it is indeed for all people. Every single one of you has the chance to come and to trust in Christ. There is no amount of fixing your life that you need to do beforehand. There is no amount of reorganizing the principles in your head that you have to do or preparing of yourself that you need to get ready for before you can accept the gift that is Jesus Christ. It is trust in him and in him alone. That is the gift that Christ is for us. We know that God will save us, for to us a child is given, to us a son is born. And God gave his son, so that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Know, therefore, all of you who trust in him, that you can indeed rejoice, for Emmanuel has come. And he will indeed come again, O Israel. Let's pray. Father, in your kindness, in your grace, you have sent to us your Son. And he, of course, has not failed. Nothing that you have given into him has fallen from his hand. No responsibility you have placed before that child was ever let go. He fulfilled everything that you have called him to fulfill, everything that you have asked of him. You have placed the entire government of the world on his shoulders, and he handled it with a plum. He has taken away sin from his people. He has taken away evil from them. He has overthrown the oppression that sin had on their lives and that Satan ruled over them. He has overthrown them all. And even one day, Father, you will have your victory totally and fully and finally in your Son over death as you will raise your people to new life. We give you praise for that this day. And we go forward, Father, in this season, looking at the prophecies that you have given concerning your Son, acknowledging that you alone could do this, that you alone could make it happen. And therefore we are comforted and therefore we are filled with hope that you will one day come again. We ask that you give us that hope and secure for us that comfort. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen.